The separation of kind of money and intimacy can blind us to what's really actually driving a lot of decision-making, especially in kind of complex social settings that are also kind of complex economic settings. Today on Better Things, we get some personal finance advice from an economic anthropologist. She'll discuss the flaws behind our preoccupation with keeping money and relationships separate and talk about the importance of knowing the stories behind people's spending, including our own. Here's Carly. I'm Dr. Caroline Schuster. I'm an anthropologist here in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology at the ANU. And I guess my like real sub-discipline, as we say, or the way I describe myself as an economic anthropologist, which most people are like, whoa, I didn't even know that was a thing, that you could uh, kind of study the economy from an anthropological perspective. So I study mostly in South America, uh, development projects especially aimed at women, uh, women's uh, empowerment, women's community development, and trying to understand their economic decisions. So why is it that some programs like microcredit it, development loans kind of work for women, whether they work for women, and what that means in their kind of wider communities. So how is it that you ended up sort of specialising in the economic side of anthropology? What led you down that path? It's a really interesting question because it's a counterintuitive one in the sense that most people, I think, come to anthropology because they've traveled and have an interest in other cultures and uh, often pick up another language. And that's what sort of inspires them to try to understand these wider cultural frameworks that guide our behavior. And I came at it from exactly the opposite direction, which was from economics, which is uh, definitely the less exciting, like less <laughs> kind of colorful, as it were. I think economics can be pretty exciting. Very exciting, <laughs> slightly <laughs> less colorful. So as a student of economics, as an undergraduate uni student, I was really interested in these kind of moral and social justice questions around poverty and inequality. And this would have been in the kind of early 2000s, in a moment when in Latin America in particular, there was um, some real kind of trouble in Latin American economies. Argentina had just experienced the largest default in global human history. And that had massive ramifications for people in the region, uh, in the whole hemisphere. So as an economics student, I was really interested in these questions of inequality and poverty and uh, social justice, and kind of wanted to use my economic toolkit to kind of understand that. And as soon as I started talking with people and kind of spending time in these communities that were really affected by these massive economic shifts that were happening globally, uh, I realized that the stories that people were telling me were much more complicated, actually, than the numbers would initially suggest. So I kind of retooled, rethought, and uh, started collecting those stories and realized that I was actually an anthropologist and not an economist, but retained that interest in issues of economic well-being, economic development, and especially the guiding issue of inequality. So why is it that we sort of divide up economic resources the way we do and who gets what share of those economic resources? So the intersection of economics and anthropology is that we're trying you're trying to kind of understand in part how people make financial decisions um, and 
you know, how you come to that understanding is by getting pretty embedded into their day-to-day lives and looking at, I suppose, all the social elements that might help to explain the economic side of things. Yeah, that's right. There's been a um, sort of a long-term interest in anthropology at getting at all of these economic processes that are sort of invisible to the data that is collected at a larger scale about the economy. So a long interest in, for example, the informal economy. And by informal economy, we mean all of the stuff that you can't count and is you can't see, as it were, in broader kind of tools like gross domestic product or looking at wage income, for example, and wage inequality. So anthropologists, by hang, deep hanging out, as it were, in these <laughs> places for a really long time, can sort of see things that the numbers can't quite see. And I should say that that kind of interest in, for example, the informal economy or precarious work, um, gig work, is something that anthropologists have long thought about as um, kind of interesting social phenomenon. But this sort of interest in how distribution systems and exchange work kind of more broadly goes back to the very heart of kind of anthropology. And uh, not in its sort of money and kind of what we would think of as modern economics, but rather kind of thinking about exchange systems that are um, non-capitalist, as it were. So at the very kind of beginning of anthropology, we were really interested in, for example, ritual and prestige-oriented exchange systems and gift exchange, for example. Or why is it that certain types of property are kind of organized around kind of ritual kinship systems instead of what we would think of in the Western context as, you know, contractual ownership and, um, and contemporary modern property? So anthropology had a long interest in all of these things that are kind of economic, kind of exchange, provisioning, distribution, consumption, but without using the kind of language of modern economics, since we were talking about other contexts that were organized along other lines. So I think it's, you know, a pretty basic statement, maybe even a dumb statement to make that we have a pretty complicated relationship with money. And in particular, in the Western world, there are a lot of contexts in which we seek to keep money and relationships separate. Um, Would you be able to speak to that a bit? Yeah. So I think going back to this initial interest that I had with kind of community development and especially kind of women's kind of economic projects, as it were, in developing settings, I came to that project with um, a lot of kind of expectations and stereotypes about what sort of good spending is and what bad spending is. And a lot of that comes from um, even from the development organizations themselves, or they're trying to kind of help um, women better manage their their finances. And I kind of taking a step back and kind of thinking about um, the sort of wider context in which these decisions are happening, I realized and kind of thinking with some of the tools in social theory, that there's some kind of pervasive tropes that organize how we can think about kind of economic decision making, and that those kind of lurk in the background, as it were, uh, when we're talking about kind of money and social relationships. So like one of the really common ones that is especially important when you're talking about families and domestic economies is uh, this notion that money can't buy love, um, or that kind of money and intimate relationships um, should be kept separate. You see this all over the place in kind of popular culture, right? In our the way that we sort of frame how we think about money and economy. 
everything from the worry that your friends are using you and like just using you to get to like your nice car or that, you know, they won't pay back that loan and that's going to kind of change your friendship all the way to the kind of idea that you like certainly wouldn't um, kind of like pay your spouse for sex, for example, um, and that that would kind of fundamentally alter your sort of relationship. And kind of knowing that we have all of these kind of stereotypes and tropes and kind of cultural ideas about money and economy, it made me sort of rethink a bit as an anthropologist, okay, so like what uh, is actually going on when we're kind of talking about money and relationships? And not just in kind of our everyday lives, but particularly in these development kind of contexts that are trying to kind of educate women into behaving in a particular way. So how is that education and financial planning actually sometimes replicating some of these ideas and stereotypes about uh, money and relationships? So do you think then that in terms of money and relationships that it's both futile and uh, pointless to try to keep these things separate or that, you know, we shouldn't and we can't separate them? That's a really good question and one that has a, a bit of a complicated answer in the sense that in our everyday lives, we'll kind of often recognize that, of course, these two are mixed up all of the time. All of our kind of social relationships, um, well, many of them have an economic component. And at the same time, many of the decisions that we make in terms of economic practices and financial decision making are kind of totally bound up with uh, all of our social obligations, our kind of family life, who we care for and how we're caring for them, what we sort of envision as uh, a good future with other people. Um, and what sort of relationships we're investing in. So on a day-to-day basis, this is all kind of jumbled up uh, in how we sort of live our economic lives. And that's sort of not surprising. On the other hand, we, in many cases, especially in sort of what we would call kind of Western kind of templates for uh, economic behavior and economic decision-making, and, well, kind of social relations as well, do a really good job of separating these <laughs> kind of really rigidly in everyday practice. So everything from this kind of iconic figure of homo economicus, economic man, this kind of individual kind of economic decision-making unit that goes to the heart of how we think about economic decisions. And they're sort of individual, usually. Um, and the decider is an individual unit separated from his or her kind of social relationships, all the way to um, these kind of stereotypes that we have about mixing love and money um, as a bad thing that we try to keep separate. So the answer is that we live with this contradiction. On the one hand, everyone knows that money and intimacy are totally mixed up. On the other hand, we work really hard to kind of separate them. So there is this contradiction. But then on the other hand, I feel like when we think about making rational decisions, we're normally talking about putting aside all the social stuff and trying to make decisions on the basis of objective information. 
Yeah, it's really kind of interesting that, well, I'll give two examples of this um, that I find kind of help me think through some of these contradictions. So I use Commonwealth Bank, as does do many, and they've got this sort of nifty part of their app that helps you track your spending on a monthly basis, and it'll divide it up through kind of all of these different categories. And uh, be like, okay, so this is health, this is how much you've spent on health this month. And this is how much you've spent on travel. And this is how much you've spent on just general spending. And you can piece it all out together and kind of figure out what your personal economic panorama looks like, kind of as it were. And kind of looking back over a couple of months, I realized that that pie chart really is kind of interesting to track what I'm spending, but it misses a lot of the reasons like why I'm doing these kind of sorts of things. For example, with the kind of health pie chart that I've kind of seen in the last two months, it wasn't health that I was spending on myself. Uh, it actually was veterinary care for my dog. And the dog was, she's been a huge part of my life and has traveled through California to Chicago, to Boston, to Australia. She's an international little traveler. So the veterinary care is also kind of tracking all of these relationships that I've had with people who I've kind of cared for this dog with kind of over time. So the decisions that I'm making about health aren't actually about my own health or about kind of someone else's health, as it were, and that someone else isn't even a person. Uh, it's you know, this animal that I have a really intense relationship with. And none of that is actually revealed in the pie chart and kind of why it is that I'm sort of choosing to spend money um, in that particular way. So kind of taking stock of the money that I'm spending also was an opportunity to take stock of all of those relationships, both with this kind of pet and also the people who have intersected with her over time. So in that sense, the budgeting that we have, the calculation, the spreadsheet um, might tell me a lot about the numbers, less revealing about the relationships itself. So we're given a lot of information from the banking system, as it were, about how we calculate and the decisions that we make. And as a social anthropologist, I'd kind of also argue that it's as important to take stock of what's sort of non-economic, as it were, um, or kind of social and cultural about that. But it's not revealed in the app because it's kept separate, right? Like that separation that we make between love and money kind of shunts that off as like something else, um, something that lives in a different conceptual space. Mm. So that's in my sort of personal life. In my research life, the separation of kind of money and intimacy can blind us to what's really actually driving a lot of decision making, especially in kind of complex social settings or also kind of complex economic settings. So one example that I came across like quite frequently during my research in kind of Paraguay was women who are kind of desperately poor. They have kind of very little income and are kind of using small loans from a development organization to kind of provision their households, but also invest in kind of usually like a small business at the same time. And their credit counselors would routinely come and do an audit of their finances and become extremely vexed and un unhappy because they realize that they are carrying something like four phone plans at the same time, like bought you know, four brand new smartphones on credit and are paying those off, uh, often with the credit that they're getting from you know, to start their small business. And the credit counselors are like, why are you doing this? Like, this is supposed to be for your business and you're buying a cell phone. Ah, this is the worst. <laughs> and, you know, after 
spending a lot of time in these communities and talking with women about these wider social networks that they have, you realize that those kind of cell phone plans, unsurprisingly, are kind of not for themselves. They're for, you know, wider family members um, who are depending on them in order to, you know, have access to this communication technology, whether it's for their children or godchildren, sometimes aunts and uncles, parents, um, kind of other family members who are meshed together with these debts that are really kind of sustaining both the family uh, as an economic unit and also kind of driving this credit kind of economy. So it's not that they're kind of being frivolous with their spending and could simply, you know, cut a bunch of spending um, and save money. Rather, these are relationships that are important and also important kind of financially. I should note, too, that sometimes these kind of debts also serve a dual purpose or something that was revealed in my research was that carrying that debt now was an investment often in the future. So these are people that you could call on uh, in a moment of need, maybe you know, months or years down the line, if you are kind of running into financial trouble and need help, um, then kind of calling in those social obligations um, could be a really important safety net. So one thing that we had talked about before and something that I'm reminded of as you're giving that example is the way in which we have this, um, I guess, propensity to make particular assumptions about how that is that people have arrived at the situations that they are, that we have a tendency to think that if somebody is in unfavorable economic circumstances, or let me just use the word poor, that they got to be that way because of irresponsible decisions about money. And um, it seems as though the example that you've just mentioned there kind of speaks to that where it's like, oh, this woman, um, she's buying these four mobile phone plans. She's just being really frivolous and people aren't taking into account the underlying reasons for those decisions, which are actually very rational. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that by kind of looking at the wider uh, social relationships that are undergirding these economic decisions, you can see both how, in many ways, kind of strategic sometimes the social setting or kind of using the social setting can be, but also how it also renders people vulnerable in um, particular ways. So that's not to say that kind of all social relationships are kind of good and happy and can be sort of activated as an investment in future. Uh, one sort of example from this research in Paraguay that I did was like quite instructive in that regard. Uh, one of the most kind of common reasons why women defaulted on their loans and couldn't make their payments was because uh, they'd been defrauded, and usually by a family member. So you sort of serve as a guarantor for another person's loan or kind of lend them some money or even you know family members who will kind of take out credit in another person's name uh, or kind of simply use a social relation to kind of extort money from kind of family members. So if you simply look at, you know, case of default, it can seem like a kind of individual decision from a debtor to kind of simply not pay. And we often kind of cast that as a morally bad kind of thing. But those kind of social relationships that can be an important safety net in some cases also can generate these really complex um, social dynamics in kind of other settings. 
in kind of all of these cases, managing the social took a whole lot of work, uh, as much work as managing your kind of budget and the, the finances. By bringing the two together and thinking about, you know, how it is that economic decisions are kind of deeply embedded in these social interdependencies, and also like how that kind of makes you vulnerable <laughs> in terms of your economic behavior by kind of depending on and being enmeshed with other people in order to make your economic decisions, we get a much more complicated story than simply individual decision making um, or kind of thinking about those individual decisions as. Um, ones that can be kind of thought of as good or bad uh, decisions, as it were, or rational, irrational decisions. So I guess in bringing a greater awareness to our social relationships and how they're intrinsically tied up with how we choose to spend money, how do you think that we could apply that to, I guess, make better decisions or to um, be better at financial planning? That's a great question, and one that well, I'm obviously coming um, from cultural anthropology, so we're always like, yes, bring back the social, it's important. <laughs> but you know, as we were kind of discussing earlier, this is stuff that we do all the time, and whether we're sort of co- like totally conscious of it or not, and thinking about, for example, gift giving and how we give gifts and why we give gifts um, has a really intense social component and social obligation. I know that if I were to not send my mom a birthday gift, I would be in deep trouble for <laughs> kind of a long time in future um, by disappointing her. <laughs> so like we do this all of the time. And I guess that what I would sort of advocate in our, in at least my own financial planning, is to kind of be a bit more conscious of how we're kind of assembling that nexus between love and money or kind of intimacy and economics. So kind of keeping track and having a sort of a think, as it were, about how and why we're doing that separating um, or bringing them together can just make us more kind of aware of how powerful these financial tools are, actually, in the sense that they're like really bundled up with the things that we care about in everyday social practice. These forms of relational belonging that are uh, absolutely at the core of who we are. So on the one hand, I say that, that we sort of should be conscious about how and under what conditions they're brought together or separated. And number two, just in a kind of more practical mode, I'm thinking again about my Commonwealth Bank app and the data that's sort of generated about it. Often when we kind of think about economics, we retreat to the spreadsheets and the numbers um, and think about kind of budgeting as uh, what anthropologists would call a calculative agency. It's like something that's going on in your brain to kind of calculate out costs and benefits and to kind of think about your sort of utility, your marginal utility of sort of doing one more good thing um, to kind of make a purchase. Is this going to help me more? Um, Can I do this sort of savings? And to kind of think about that in quantitative terms. And from this discussion, what I hope to kind of take away from it is that those numbers are very important and they're also deeply social in the sense that they tell a story about who we care about and who we're related to and who we're interdependent with and that we should take that dimension as seriously as the kind of sums at the bottom of the Excel spreadsheet, kind of as it were, and that that will actually reveal a lot to ourselves both about our relationships and also about our finances. So instead of keeping them separate and thinking about our financial planning as an exercise in maths, 
uh, and just maths to think about how the maths are also a social calculus and a social process uh, and deeply embedded in all of these really important social goals that we have as well. So I guess thinking more closely about or analysing how it is that we're using our money and seeing what that tells us about what value we're placing on different things and on different relationships. Yeah, and I think this is a really kind of important point that you just made that our kind of idea of value is so often bundled up in our idea of values, right? Like what we actually kind of care about and the goals that we have. The fact that when you sort of sit down to make your monthly budget, our kind of first impulse is to pull out the calculator. We might want to sort of add some other tools to that as well and think about kind of taking stock of what some of those social relationships are. And to kind of take that as seriously as the the budgeting, because the two are linked. Money is always about kind of social interdependency, and social interdependency is so often channeled through money. So our kind of infinite capacity, it seems, to kind of pull them apart and keep them separate and hived off uh, might be doing us more kind of harm than good, as it were. Bringing them back together can be really uh, instructive in thinking about both sides, like thinking about our economics and also thinking about our social interdependencies. So in being steeped in this knowledge and this research and presumably applying this awareness to your own day-to-day, do you think that this has helped to make you like a primo budgeter and, and spender? Ha, that's an amazing question. <laughs> and partly because, uh, so I have the like, completely like non-scientific guess that many people get into their kind of line of research because uh, it's a real puzzle in their life. Um, so I like to joke with some of my kind of psychologist friends that like they must be working on um, some, some deep-seated issues that the archaeologists just like have a real thing with rocks and that the anthropologists, we just like can't figure out social stuff. And so that's why we kind of study this sort of stuff. You know, getting into this sort of area, I swear it's because um, I've just been baffled by this for kind of my whole life. And kind of everything from kind of growing up in California during the credit boom in the late 90s, kind of 2000s, and, you know, watching my parents both like try to start small businesses and the kind of massive strain that that put on um, on them, on their relationship, on our family, kind of investing in uni for me and my sister. These always felt like economic decisions that also carried really high stakes in terms of social relations as well. And that's something that I felt really kind of deeply um, growing up and also and up until this day. So all that's to say that there's no silver bullet, obviously, um, with kind of figuring this sort of stuff out. But being sort of more conscious and more aware of how it is and under what conditions we're kind of mixing money and love, uh, I think does give us a better tool to kind of suss out for ourselves and our life, like what's going on with these really kind of complex dynamics that can seem really sort of baffling. And I mean, if there were a kind of a perfect solution, then I'm sure that the endless advice columns about um, kind of what to do with sort of no good friends that won't pay back their debts or kind of wringing your hands about having to pay for a really expensive bridesmaid's dress for the wedding that you want to go to, that 
the endless ink spilled on the economic issues that are kind of brought together with social issues would have resolved this at some point. I think that you know, more to the point, being an anthropologist and studying this really intensely has made me appreciate how kind of dev- devilishly complicated um, that nexus of love and money kind of is and how important it is to, like, rather than kind of hive them off as separate, to kind of have a think about what the consequences are for assembling them in particular ways, what that reveals about both our kind of wider economy and also our kind of wider social ties. I think it would make an excellent advice columnist, just for the record. Oh, excellent. <laughs> well, uh, given that anthropology trucks in many of the same like social questions, as it were, you know, family dynamics, economic decisions, uh, friends and friendships, uh, it's ripe for uh, exactly that type of discussion, right? Yes, I think so. Carly Schuster, thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks, Ivana. It's been lovely. Better Things is brought to you by the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. This show is produced by me, Ivana Ho. The theme music is One More Time by Fab Beat. Tell your friends about Better Things and subscribe to us in your preferred podcasting app. If you haven't already, have a listen to our other podcast, This Academic's Life, to learn about the pivotal events and experiences that shape the lives, careers and research of our academics. Tune in next time for more insights on how to approach the world to live a better life.